that hymn has become one of my favorites over the years. I actually learned it when I was in Bible school in, the, in South Carolina. That last verse, Ever lift thy face upon me as I work and wait for thee. It's, there's both there. We work, we labor, we strive, but we rest and we wait. And may the Lord give us grace in finding that balance. Resting neath thy smile, Lord Jesus, earth's dark shadows flee. A wonderful hymn, wonderful testimony. The place of where God brings the believer, the place of rest. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we'll be looking this morning at verses 12 through 16. Pressing onward, actually the fuller title which I've put on my notes here, is a model for pressing onward. We will incidentally get back to the book of Ephesians probably in two weeks. I think next week we're going to be observing the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, next Sunday. So my message will be tied with that. And then the following Sunday, I do plan to get back to the book of Ephesians and then to finish the book in whatever number of weeks, two or three weeks that will take. Now, the Apostle Paul is highly regarded in Christian circles, and rightly so. He's the writer of much of our New Testament, the writer of many of the letters that we have in the New Testament. But we need to be careful that we don't make the mistake of regarding someone of Paul's caliber as some type of a super spiritual saint that didn't experience the struggles and the trials and the battles of his everyday life that we experience. You know, sometimes we can get into the mindset that people like Paul, that they're above these things. They don't struggle like I struggle. They don't battle like I battle. But if we read the letters of Paul, we find that he is, in fact, more than willing to expose his weaknesses. He does many times in his letters to to the churches. To just talk about his struggles and the weaknesses, the battles that he does experience, all that he might exalt the grace of God. Paul knows the Christian life is not about Paul doing his best. Paul understands that the Christian life is about the grace of God at work within him. And he wants that to be exalted above all things. And so many times we find that Paul gives us in his writings a sense of, of coming alongside with the readers, identifying with them in their struggles, and identifying with them in their pilgrimage. And this morning I want us to read the text that I've chosen from Philippians chapter 3. As a text, again, we see something here of, of the frailty, the imperfections, the, the sense that Paul is not this super spiritual saint who's arrived at some level of spirituality and we can only hope to attain there. So let's read here, beginning in verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained it. And here he speaks of the things he's spoken of previously. Let's back up just to catch that. Verse, verse 9. I might be found in him, not, ha- not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Some of those things we can look at and say, well, Paul's been through that. But there are some of those things that still he has not experienced, he's not tasted. So we come to verse 12, it says, Not that I've already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, in other words, an attitude that is not the same as this, God will reveal that to you. He's going to show you that. Verse 16, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. I wonder if any of you, not this time, I don't want to show of hands here. I'm not asking for volunteers to speak out. But I wonder if anyone in this room this morning, you can say, I've had some spiritual battles this week. We can say that, can't we? Of various forms. They come in different ways. And I wonder if any of you, as you think back, maybe over the last week, the last couple of weeks, you think, not only have I had some real battles, I've had some miserable failures. Some miserable falls. Of not, of not walking with the Lord. Of not going the Lord's way. Not choosing the Lord's solution to, to a particular situation or circumstance that I was in. So I've got... The battles, but I've also got the failures. And so we get to the place in our lives, spiritually, we say, well, here's the reality. I know I can't give up. <laughs> I can't quit. But I'm not sure I have the, the grace to go on either. And so we find ourselves something of a, of a transition. Well, what do I do? I'm not, certain I can, I'm not certain I can go on, and I can't quit either. What do I do? What's the approach that I need to take here? Well, the reality is the Christian life is a, it's a difficult journey, isn't it? You, haven't, you can nod your head on some of this if you like. It is. It's a difficult journey. It's not an easy road. It's not a, a bed of roses. And if, it's, if it is, it's, it's certainly got the thorns in the midst of it. It's a difficult journey. And because of that, we must advance in this spiritual journey with a mature attitude, as Paul talks about here, the, to have this mature attitude in verse 15. His men are perfect. Have this attitude. Well, what is the attitude that he presents to us? What's the model that he gives to us this morning to consider as a model for, in his terms, pressing onward, of going on, continuing on in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the failures, in the midst of the fight, saying we're going on. What's, what's, what does he give us here? First of all, he gives us a goal. Paul says he has a goal. He tells the, the saints here at Philippi, he tells them that he is pressing on. He uses the terminology twice here, verse 12 and in verse 14. And he tells them that he has this goal that is set before him. And he tells us two things about this goal. First of all, he says that this goal is a goal that is yet unattained. It is an unattained goal. He's reviewed his journey from self-righteous Judaism in the previous verses here to a satisfaction and a perfect and a perfect righteousness that is found in in Jesus Christ. Look back very quickly at Philippians chapter 3. Where we see there the just where Paul has come from. He talks about in verse 3. That we are the true circumcision. Who worship in the spirit of God. And the glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. And then he begins to review his own experience. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh. I've got more than them. Here is my record. I was circumcised the eighth day, according to the law, of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in other words, likely his mother and father, both Jewish, as to the law, a Pharisee, the most zealous of people of this day, as to zeal, I was so zealous for the law of God and the ways of God that I was involved in persecuting the church. Those, that group that was rising up out of Judaism, claiming that this Jesus is the Messiah, uprooting Judaism in his thinking, I opposed them even to the point of approving of death. Persecuting the church. And as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. Now Paul had a good bit that he had come from, didn't he? But he concludes all this by stating his desire to be identified with Christ in the deepest expressions, as we just read a few minutes ago, this The terminology of being found in Him, that I may know Him, that I may know the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, of being conformed unto His death. That He looks back on that which He once considered to be important and realizes that it in fact was nothing to Him. And He has chosen rather to exchange it for this satisfaction that comes in Christ and this desire to be identified with Jesus Christ in every way possible. What a place of spiritual maturity, isn't it? To come to this place where we can look back and all those things that were once counted as gain, we see to be as lost and to find a satisfaction in Jesus Christ that He satisfies every longing of our hearts, that we can be content in Him and in Him alone when Jesus Christ is in fact enough. He's arrived, hasn't he? This is the ultimate place. But not according to Paul. Because as we come to verse 12, he says, I have not already obtained it. Or have already become perfect. But I press on. I press on. In other words, Paul's words is, I am not there yet. I've not arrived. I've not come to a place spiritually in my life that I can sit back in my easy chair and just enjoy and wait for my eternal reward to come. Nor does he change the goal to something that we might consider to be attainable. Verse 16, he says, keep on living by the same standard to which we have attained. What's he saying there? What's the temptation that comes to our life if we, we have a goal before us as believers in Christ? You do have a goal, don't you? Do you have any spiritual goals? What are, you, what are you aiming at as a believer? What are your spiritual goals that you shoot for? And many times, if, we, if we're not careful, we set a goal out there. This is, what I want to, this is what I want to attain to. And we look after a few years in our Christian experience and say, you know what? That's impossible. And so we start lowering the standard to something that we think, hey, I can do that. And generally what we mean is that's something I can attain in my own strength, by my own resource. I don't really need the power of God. Paul says, don't do that. Don't move, don't lower the standard. Keep living by the same standard to which we've attained. In other words, what has been revealed to you is the will and the ways of God. Continue to pursue after that. Don't change it. Don't sell yourself short for something less. Continue to pursue this goal that is unattained and is, in a sense, unattainable in its fullest sense. We will pursue it until the day we die. 
will not come to the place in our Christian experience of perfection. It is an unattained goal. Second of all, Paul tells us in verse 14 that it is an upward goal. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the Toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is a goal that is set before us. It is set by the activity of God, according to Paul. This is not a goal that Paul sat down and, and decided to pursue after on his own initiative. It's an upward, it's the upward call of God. It's initiated by God. God has done a work. God is the one who has set this goal before me. It is His activity, His calling that I... And this, the terminology Paul uses here, it's a prize. Go for the prize. But it is also secured. This goal is secured in the person, the work of Christ Jesus. What does he say? It's the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus that we attain this goal. In a sense, we can say, yes, if we're believers, we have attained. We have come to a place of, of embracing the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing Him as our Lord and our Savior, living our lives under His rule. Yet on the other hand, we have to say that we have not fully attained. We've not attained in its fullest sense what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple of Christ. We are still pursuing. So what... Paul points out here, what he shows us here is that much about the nature, about the Christianity is this. It's, first of all, he shows that conversion, conversion to Christianity is a beginning, not an end. Conversion is a beginning, not an end. And that's an important message for us to hear in a day where there's been such an emphasis upon getting people to make some type of a religious decision. A focus upon the the work and the act of conversion which needs to be done, but at the same time it's become a very man-centered idea. And so Paul points out here, it's not just about getting people saved. It's not just about getting someone to walk an aisle. It's not just about getting someone to pray a prayer. It's about getting someone truly to the place of understanding their need of Christ, their violation of the laws of God, their offense against God, their need to be reconciled to Him, and coming to terms of peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's more than just a crisis point of conversion. It is the beginning of a life that has been transformed and continuing to be transformed by the grace of God. And we need to be aware. We need to be careful of his spirituality that advances and it promotes so much the conversion, the conversion aspect, the conversion point of salvation and neglects the sanctification, the growing aspect of salvation. Both are to be found in Scripture. Both are to be found in a true conversion. He also shows that Christianity is a, a life of continual progression until death. We don't get to the finish line. We don't get to the place in our spiritual lives we can just sit back. I've done my part. I've done my role. I'm going to sit back and enjoy life. We continue to press on. We don't get to the place where we can say it's time to stop. But he also shows us this, that contentment, contentment and discontentment coexist. In the hearts of believers. There's a sense in which. 
a believer, a child of God, is content. If you've come to know Jesus Christ, there is a contentment in that. There is a satisfaction in that of knowing you've come to Him. Yet at the same time, there is a holy and a righteous discontent in our experience. Because we ought to be those who awaken each day with a sense of, Lord, I've not lived as I should in the past. I would desire for this day to be different. There's a desire to say, to pursue after the Lord. There's a desire to find more and more of a satisfaction in Him. To say, Lord, I've not been satisfied in You. I've wanted You and other things. I've wanted You and my ideas, my dreams. And we need to be discontent with that. We need to be discontent with where we are spiritually. So there is a, there's a sense there in which contentment and discontent coexist in the hearts of believers. I was driving home the other night in my van and I was listening to the radio. It was a Christian radio station. And uh, I was listening to uh, Dr. Tony Evans preach. I've heard him occasionally just preach. And he was preaching on this text. <laughs> Oh, this is interesting. I might get something for Sunday out of this. <laughs> because, of course, I'd already have my, my text fixed by, fixed by then. And he was talking about, I just, I can't say it as he said. If you ever heard uh, Tony Evans preach, he, he and I are, we're not in the, the same uh, delivery type. But he did say this, you know, that we're bothered so many times about when things don't go right. We're not bothered about our spiritual lives. We're not bothered about spiritual things. And we need to be discontent about the spiritual things in our lives. Yes, there's a contentment. There's a contentment of knowing that we're in Christ and that, and that heaven is our ultimate destination and that we'll be with Him. At the same time, there's to be a discontentment in our lives. You know, where are, where are the saints of this century who, who cry out to us as the psalmist does in Psalm 42 when he says, My soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Or in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and a weary land where there's no water, my soul clings to you. Psalm 84, my soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Psalm 143, verse 6, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. You know, where are the people of this day that, that cry and have a longing for God like that? Who know what it is to have come to Christ and be satisfied in Him. To know that we're reconciled to God. Yet at the same time, they awaken with a, with a desire and a longing for God. It says, a parched land. Where is that? It's in the hearts of people who spend their time meditating on the words of God and quietly before the face of God. And say, Lord, I want to want you. And that's where we need to start. Lord, I don't long for you. But I want to want you. I long to long for you. There is a goal. Do you have a goal? Spiritually? How many areas of your life do you count to be a success that you do not have goals in? 
You have goals at work. You have goals maybe in life in general. Do you have any spiritual goals? Or is spirituality just kind of something that, well, kind of takes care of itself, kind of drift along? Well, if we're going to press on, you need a goal. You need a spiritual goal. It's that goal that is set before us, that goal for the prize of the upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus, pressing on for a deeper knowledge of Him. He also gives us a guard. In order to be focused on what lies ahead, he sets a guard, and that guard is this. He tells us in verse 13, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting. Forgetting what lies behind. There's your guard. It's It's a rear guard. It's a guard to prevent him from dwelling on and living in the past. Forgetting what lies behind him. You know, what's he talking about here? And what's Paul got in mind? It seems to be, just from the context here, if we understand this as one unit, which is rightfully so, it seems to be what Paul is talking about here in his own experience of what lies behind him are the advantages of his family heritage, his training, his zeal, his moral excellences. All those things, again, he looked at at one time and said, these are great assets to me. These are to my advantage. And then as one who has come to Christ, he looks back and he sees them as they truly are. And realizes that, in fact, they weren't to any advantage at all. If anything, I count them as loss. But at the same time, he does not look back with just an overwhelming regret. And with some type of a sentimental attachment to these things. He does not look back with pride and self-confidence on I'm looking at, well, this is where I was, and now look at where I am. This is, I was consumed with these things, now look at me. I've come to where I'm satisfied, and I'm pursuing after Christ with all my heart. So look what I have to boast in. Look how proud I can be now. He doesn't do that either. He forgets what lies behind him. It's not an absolute forgettingness. No, we don't have that ability. But it is a forgetting of the type that prevents us from looking back to the past and trying to relive the mistakes we've made or trying to, trying to carry the laurels and the glory of the past into our present day experience to live on past successes. You know, you're not going to change the failures and you can't carry the successes into tomorrow. There's a sense we need to look back Say, yes, I can see these things. That's part of who I am. That's part of my story. That's part of my heritage. But those are not the things that control me. If it be if it be failures, if it be those things that I look upon with shame, that's not going to dictate my life today. If you look back on things that I can give thanks to God for, thank God for the victories and the successes, thank God for the work of grace. At the same time, I'm not going to stop there and be satisfied with that. I'm going on forgetting what lies behind. You can look at a past that's marked by failure, sins of great magnitude. And we can look at those and many times we try to determine what God can and cannot do with us. God can't use me for this. Look at, my, look at what I've done here in the past. You know, if there was ever a man that I wouldn't have chosen to be a great instrument of the work of God, it would have been Paul, Saul. I mean, this guy is a persecutor of the church. You don't use this man in the way God used him. You make an example of him. And you strike him down on the road to Damascus and you take his life. 
he struck him down all right, but he said, I've got great things for you. What was he? He was a persecutor of the church. And Paul says, I'm the greatest of sinners. I did these things in ignorance. And the grace of God is at work within me now. You know, he didn't look at his past and say, well, I can't be used of God greatly because look at the nature and the degree of my sin. You know, usually those things are have this a false humility and it's rooted in a self-centeredness and a self-pity. Oh, poor me. God can't use me. I'm not being anything great in the kingdom of God. Nor do we look back at a past of deliverance and spiritual growth and become content with the progress that we've made and become spiritually lax. Can't do that. See, Israel reached a point in their life where they tended to rest upon the laurels of the past and God addressed a message to them, to the nation of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. Very quickly, turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 21 and following. If the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices, justice and righteousness, he shall surely live... He shall not die. What's he saying? A man whose life has been marked by evil, marked by wickedness, marked by sin, rebellion, defiance against the will of God. If he's willing to turn from that. He turns from his sin and he observes the the statutes of God, practices justice, righteousness. He'll live. He'll not die. All his transgressions which he's committed, they'll, they'll not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he's practiced. He will live. We like that, don't we? Isn't that great? We can say, hey, I can identify that to some degree. Can't you? That's wonderful, isn't it? Let's keep reading. Verse 24. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and he commits iniquity and he does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? A righteous man. All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sin which he has committed for them he will die. That's not as exciting, is it? In fact, the word of the Lord to them says, yet you say this is the response of the heart of Israel to this decree of God. You say, the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is my way not right? Thou punish a man who has been righteous, but he's turned from his righteousness, and he's turned to sin, and he dies. Is it not your ways that are not right? It's not the ways of God that are wrong. It's the ways of man. What's what's the situation here? The temptation to rest upon the laurels and the success of the past. Look back. Look at the victories. Look what we've look what we've done for God. That ought to be worth something. That ought to be worth a little bit of pleasure. That'll be worth a little bit of sin. And God says, huh. The person who turns from righteousness, he turns to sin, receives the judgment of God. He dies. And the response is, that's not right. The ways of God are not right. And the Lord says, It's your ways are not right. We don't coast. Fearful of many who have 
been raised in a culture again of decisionism where they can look back at a point in life where I know I was I know I was saved back there and I was zealous in the church for a number of years and all of a sudden it just dies. You don't see them in church. Not only do you not see them in church, you see them involved with all types of things that are dishonoring to the Lord. What happens? You talk to them. You believe, oh yeah, I was saved back there 20 years ago. I hadn't been in church in the last 10 I was. I know I'm saved because of what I let. Listen, that's frightful. That's frightful. Very similar to the, to the children of Israel. Say, well, hey, we're the people of God. He's not going to do anything to us. We are His chosen people. We need to be alarmed at that. Paul's approach is: you forget the past. Not absolutely, but you don't dwell there. You don't try to fix the wrongs. You can't do it. But you don't rest on the successes either, because you will fall. Christian life goes on. There is a guard to be set up, and that is a right understanding of our past, a right appreciation for it, but don't live there. Finally, there's a grace. See, Paul's model here of having a goal to aim for and having a guard regarding our past, that's good, but is that enough? I mean, to be honest with you, that sounds pretty similar to a lot of secular approaches to success in business. You know, you need to have a goal in front of you. You'd have a guard behind you. That sounds like just anybody else's. You don't have to be a Christian to have that, do you? Well, if you're talking about work and success, that type of thing, that's true. But what does make this different from a secular approach to success in vocation and careers or education or whatever the case may be? The distinction is found in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of what? That I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of. There's the difference. We have this goal. We have this pursuit that we're going after. But the heart behind it all is the fact that there has been someone who has pursued us. He has a higher goal, a higher purpose, a higher aim for us than we would ever imagine for ourselves. And so Paul says, what I'm pursuing after is, I want to attain that thing for which Christ himself has pursued me and attained me. He's grabbed me. He's got a hold of me. And it's for a purpose. The success or the failure of my apprehending what I pursue is not ultimately going to be determined by my ability, by my resolve, by my determination. It will ultimately be determined by the grace of God. He has pursued me for a purpose. And He has set me, He has set my heart to pursue that purpose. But ultimately, ultimately, success of attaining that for which we pursue is the grace of God. That's the power. That's the resource. See, Paul is a man 
of great spiritual ambition, not because he had his head in the clouds, but rather he was a man who simply recognized that God was more determined than he himself was that we have the things that he pursues after. As we shared last week about seeking first the kingdom of God and the word there in Luke and Paul, Jesus says that it's the Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. He wants to give us that which we pursue spiritually much more than we want it. But not only does He want to give it to us, He will see to it that we attain it. The success of this pilgrimage is not our resolve, it's not our determination, it's the grace of God. It carries us on. Paul had been laid hold of, in his words, for a purpose by Christ. Part of that is to see to it that he receives all the benefits of redemption from calling and conversion all the way to eternal glory. You know, you get to those points in your Christian life and say, I know I can't quit, but I can't go on either. Yeah, you will. Yes, you can. Because the grace of God is within you. you. You can't quit and you will go on. But it's grace. It's grace. So Paul's model here is there's the tension of striving. As we sang about Jesus, I am resting, resting. There's the tension of striving, yet trusting. The tension of laboring, laboring hard in the kingdom of God for the things of God in pursuit of the things of God, yet resting. You know, there's nothing easy. If you haven't noticed it. There's nothing easy about getting up in the morning and spending time with God. It's work. But at the same time, there's a sweet grace. There's a sweet grace of God that comes to us with that, with that pursuit. And there's this tension of activity, of we're working and doing these things, and yet at the same time, passivity. We are passively receiving, passively experiencing the grace of God in our lives. So that Paul says to the church at Philippi, another place, he says, it's, it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to do the desire and the ability, both to willing and the doing of His good pleasure. Yes, it is our willing, it is our desire, but it is ultimately God working. It is His grace. Listen, we go nowhere. You can have you know, as many goals as you can think of out there in front of you, you can, you can put the guards up in the back and forget the past, but you go nowhere without grace. You go nowhere spiritually without grace. Without the grace and the power of God that we might press on. So, we do press on. The model here is we have a goal. It's a high goal. It's an upward goal. It's one that we have not yet attained to. And we will not, we'll pursue it to the day that we die. We have a guard. We set it up. We don't look back in the past and live there and dwell upon the failures or the successes. We have a grace. It's a sweet grace. It's a kind grace. The grace of God because He is determined. He is determined that we will receive every benefit of redemption. We'll get it. He'll see to it. So we press on by His grace and by His power. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You. You have set before us Your way.
And it's not the ways of, of men, not the ways of our natural understanding, but it's the way of God. We desire and we need to press on today, this week, this year. But we will not do it apart from your grace. But we thank you that you are not unwilling. We thank you that you are not slack. That you're strong on our behalf. Desiring to pour out grace to your people. So Lord, we, we look to you. And we will pursue these things that you've set before us. We'll pursue that upward calling of maturity in Christ, of satisfaction in Christ. We'll pursue that with all of our heart. But at the same time, we say, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.